United, that's the one in St. Paul? Okay. We are in, I guess we're at, we can start on Hebrews 11.11, 11, right where we were the last time I was still here with you. Again, it's so nice to be back. Hebrews 11.11, 11, By faith even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. And so we talked about this a little last week in... Uh, though there were bumps in the road for both Abraham and Sarah, neither of them ever gave up on the promise of God. It's Hebrews 11.11. 11. And they, some of the bumps in the road were caused by the fact that they were so intently believing the promise and uh, that there needed to be an heir, that the land promise was real, that the descendants were going to be there. Uh, they had a couple bumps in the road like Ishmael. But they never gave up that the, God had really given the promise and that somehow or another, even if God had to raise somebody from the dead, that the promise would be fulfilled. So here, Sarah is included in the list of the people of faith from the Old Testament that illustrate how it is that we draw near to God, and that is by faith. And this is faith based on the trustworthiness of God. That's an important idea. In the 80s, uh, just to practice being a writer, I wrote a book on the word faith. And I spent a whole winter down there with my little old two-floppy disk computer that I spent $2,000 for <laughs> in 1985. <laughs> Anybody old enough to remember that? <laughs> And uh, you put the one in and you put the other in and you kept swapping floppies. And I wrote a whole book on this, but it was a good practice. My writing was really of no value to anybody but me. But one of the things I found was that the Old Testament conception of faith is that it's man's response to God's previous action. God is the one who first initiates his uh, word who comes to man. He appeared to Abraham. All right. Faith is a response that comes from God's previous action. So God spoke. Abraham listened. Abraham believed. So here we have faith that is responding to God based on God's character, knowing that God cannot lie, that God is trustworthy, and that God has all power. And that whatever God has indeed promised, He shall bring to pass. You know, I wrote the book actually to try to refute the faith movement because that was something that had influenced me back in the 70s. And I wanted to just get my own thinking straight. And one of the things I... They have a lot of serious errors in that movement. But some, some things they say are true. But in one regard, where they err is in what God actually has promised. Right? And they would say, they would emphasize that you should believe what God says and confess your faith in what God has said. Now, again, they, they embellish it with all kinds of false teachings. But part of the error is they believe that God said that we're going to be rich and healthy. Now, and they remove the eternal perspective altogether. In fact, they consider that unworthy of Christians to be thinking about heaven because that's a defeated attitude. And so, it, that I was just trying to work through my own thinking that had been 
badly influenced back in the early Christian life by some of those teachings. And I found out that it's very, very important to really understand the Scripture in its context so you know what God really has promised. Because that's what we're relying on, what He has promised. We, if I believe God promised He's going to make me rich, and I confess that, and then I try to make it happen, I may plunge myself into ruin and destruction. I think, too, it's, I'm talking about parents, Sarah, with their faith. It wasn't a, a mystical experience that she believed that God spoke to her. If you go back to Genesis 18, she was sitting in the tent. Abraham was giving men food, and they were eating food with physical, tangible bodies. And these men with vocal cords said something to Sarah and Abraham heard with their real little ears. So it wasn't some mystical quote physically. She heard physically. And because of this real promise that was tangible, temples of you know, Sodom the next day burned up so they knew it was God. <laughs> he had said this, that this was true. Yeah. So it was something that she really knew was God speaking. Amen. Yeah, God, yeah, Hebrews, I hope Ryan covered this last week, but Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, we should always keep in mind as we go through this study, God has spoken. He spoke to the fathers in, a, in many portions, many ways. He has spoken. The tense in the Greek would indicate in full and final revelation in these last days through His Son. So, why do we spend our time studying the Bible? Because in the Scripture, we know exactly what God has spoken so that we're putting our faith firmly on the objective truth and content of God's Word. And we're trusting promises we know are true because God incarnate, Jesus Christ Himself, spoke both personally to witnesses and by inspiring the apostles to write down the content so that we know what God has said. And these are the promises that we believe. Now, what we're going to see here is that these are eternal and not just temporal. So, we, we studied 11. Let's go to 11.12. I think I already did the cross-references last time in Hebrews 11.11. 11, 11.12 says, Therefore, also there was born of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Now, this was the promise, and the fulfillment is both national, literal Israel, the, the, the Jews, the descendants of Abraham who received the promise, and those who would be blessed through their Messiah and by faith become sons and daughters of Abraham. So I think it includes both the literal physical descendants and, and even more importantly, the remnant within those physical descendants, the saved Israel, those who believe, and those who are grafted in to this patriarchal promise, according to Romans 11, everyone of faith. And so, ultimately, as the Bible accounts this, these descendants as numerable as of the sand of the sea, will be all of the redeemed ultimately gathered together in a new Jerusalem in heaven. And they'll be from all these people will be Abraham's descendants, according to the promise. Do you believe that? Hallelujah. <laughs> Amen. And uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb will be this huge gathering of Abraham's descendants, according to promise. 
Uh, a couple cross-references. Jim and Lisa, you want to do a couple verses? All right, Jim. Uh, Genesis 15.5. Gerald. See, when you get old, the mind still works. It's just a slower process. <laughs> Somebody says the Rolodex flips more slowly when you bring it up names. Gerald and Lisa. Gerald. Um, Genesis 15.5 and Lisa, Genesis 22.17. And then you're going to have to help me. Uh, what's your name? Luann. I knew that. <laughs> Genesis 26.4. And are you, uh, again, your name? Greg. Greg. Um, if you could do Romans 4, no, excuse me, Jeremiah 33.22. Okay. All right, Genesis 15.5. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now for the heavens and count the stars and who are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. All right, literally God appeared to Abraham in some sort of theophany, took him outside and literally had him look at the stars. How he's just up north doing that. Really uh, amazing. <laughs> it's amazing when you go down on the lake on a clear night and look up at the stars. That's what Abraham literally saw. And then, can you imagine, God says, that's what your descendants will be like? Try to count them. Well, you can't. The idea is it is innumerable. Um, well, it, no, from a human perspective, they're innumerable, but God would, would know. Yeah, God would know that. Yeah. Yeah, now I think we looked up a cross-reference a couple of weeks ago to that about God numbering the stars, I think, in the Psalms. So, literally, God can number them, but literally, we can't. And if you want to try, go up north. In fact, if you don't want to get a kink in your neck, you know, when you get old, you're not as flexible, you go out and you lay on the dock. See? So, you can look up. And they have meteor showers this time of the year. And you can, we saw meteors, and it's really fun. Yes. Yeah, because there's less humidity in the air to filter it out. And anytime, if you've seen that even once in your life, you would realize that innumerable, from our perspective, is very literal. You couldn't even start, forget it. It's not possible. So you understand the vastness of the universe. But from God's perspective, the universe, however big it is, is finite. God is infinite. Okay, the next one, uh, uh, Lisa, 22.7. Okay, again, there's a reiteration of the promise. And Luann? Okay, so there, that, that brings in more people. There's these descendants, and then there's the nations who are blessed by them. Okay, Jeremiah 33.22. Yeah, now that's an int- the reason I included that one in Jeremiah is but there's a progression. Now it, there there in Jeremiah 33:22, it's using the same terminology as the Abrahamic promises, but now it's applying it to David. So we can see that God is narrowing down how this is going to happen. The seed singular of Abraham is Messiah. And now by including David in it, we see that David is, is the 
kingly lineage through which Messiah will come. And there's a reiteration of the promise using the same terminology that you find in the Pentateuch. So, for example, the book of Matthew, the, the genealogy is there to show this line. And it, and it goes back and specifically mentions generations from Abraham to David and from David to Messiah. Why? To prove that Jesus is a rightful legal heir of the throne of David. And so we see this innumerable descendants is ultimately going to come through Messiah. Amen? Yes, Keith. Well, you was thinking about the same concept. You were talking, we're only going back to Abraham and saying that from the, the promise given to Abraham, whereas the promise of the coming Messiah was first given to Eve. So when you have the rights like Seth, the guy that got killed by Cain, you have righteous people before Abraham, but they're really not his descendants. Um, there, yeah, there, there's, there's a progressive narrowing. If you want, there's an excellent book on this that both Ryan and I read, and, and we're very impressed with. It's written by Walter Kaiser. Not following the title, there's something about Messiah. Walter Kaiser. We have a videotape about it also in the library from Ankerberg with Walter Kaiser, and he traces this from the seed of the woman. It's narrowed down to Seth, right? And the Semites and Shem. That was another narrowing. Anyhow, he traces it all the way through the Old Testament and brings it to Messiah. Walter Kaiser, excellent material. If you like to read a book, I don't know if it's still in print, I don't, uh, but there's a videotape in our library with Walter Kaiser talking about the promises. But yeah, it starts with the seed of the woman. And the New Testament knows this. The New Testament says that at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of the woman, born under the law. This telling us, think about the promise to Eve. That the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And the promises of the Old Covenant. The law, Moses, where in the Pentateuch we have these seed promises like Abraham. So Jeremiah shows that this also is um, including the Davidic Covenant that's built upon the Abrahamic one and continues along the promise. Now, Hebrews 11.12 is a con- interesting conflation. It takes several Old Testament texts and puts them together. All right, And this was a very Jewish way of citing Scripture. And often not even giving a reference. So what we have is a conflation of some of these texts that we read here. Meaning you take a piece here and here and you put it together. And then there's an allusion. It's not a direct quote of any verse. But this is alluding to things that the Hebrews would have known from their Tanakh, which is the Old Testament. Okay, Born of one man, good as dead, descendants, stars of the heaven, innumerable of sand. That comes from Jeremiah. And so that is what they would have accepted as being historically true. Now to verse 13. And all these died in faith without receiving the promises but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now we bring in an eschatological perspective. And uh, the, the phrase here, I want to uh, unpack some of the terminology here. 
from the Greek in the, in the grammar. From a distance here is a, a metaphor that is temporal, not literally spatial. Normally we think from a distance would be you're driving somewhere and you finally see what it is you know, what, that your destination would be. So we're thinking geography, how many miles. But here it's, it's a time distance, not a space distance. Temporal. It's a temporal metaphor. And, and therefore, from a distance means from an eschatological. In other words, they were looking forward. They were looking into the future. That these innumerable, innumerable descendants would ultimately be ones that are gathered in a heavenly city at the end of the age. Because Abraham in his lifetime didn't receive these promises. It says they died in faith without having received the promise. That brings my mind back to that book I, I wrote on this in the 80s. This was a very important passage for me to help me refute the thinking of the Word of Faith movement. Because this, this they could not accept. Right. There's no such thing as dying in faith without receiving promises. That didn't fit into anything that they ever taught or preached. Because to them, if you don't have the, if you don't receive the promise now, that proves you don't have faith. So here's an important verse. You know, that movement is still gaining, it's, it didn't go away. Alright? I mean, there's some huge churches that are still believing even though it's been debunked, uh, Dan McConnell wrote a great book showing that the stuff was all plagiarized from E.W. Kenyon, who was a, a false teacher from the Theosophical Society. All of this stuff's been debunked, but it hasn't slowed it down one bit. It's still on TV. Uh, the biggest church in America is a proponent of this view. This um, Osteen. Yeah. Now, I'll tell you, in 1972 and 73, 71, 72 and 73, I became a Christian in 71. I was reading and believing these things. All right, so I know this stuff. I was an early innovator in, in heresy. <laughs> Thankfully, I never, at the time, I didn't have a podium, so I didn't have a chance to preach it. Thank God for that. Uh, but I was reading and listening to Kenneth Hagin in 73, and nobody had even heard of this. And back then, he was talking about E.W. Kenyon all the time. All right? And I listened, he used to have a radio show I'd listen to. He was talking about E.W. Kenyon, and he was talking all the, and just acknowledging that's where he got his material. Later, when he got popular, E.W. Kenyon disappeared, and then he got it by personal revelation from God. And he wrote this book called I Believe in Visions. And Hagen claimed that God took him up to heaven and Jesus taught him his doctrine. But when I heard him in 73, E.B.W. Kenyon taught him his doctrine. And so, uh, this thing kind of came unraveled in my mind and thankfully I got out of it before I had a chance to preach any of that, that stuff. But uh, there's a good book by McConnell that deals with it. But here we have a different view of faith is that you can have faith. In fact, some of the greatest people of faith were hated, spurned, scorned, poverty-ridden, and never had anything in this world. In fact, later in Hebrews 11, it says they were sawn asunder. Anybody believing for that one? 
Uh, well, of course not. We, we don't look for that. But the important thing is that we believe the promises. Well, what did God promise? He promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I shall not fear what shall man do unto me. He promised that no matter what happens, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And the good being that we're conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that we ultimately share His glory in all eternity. That's the promise of God. And that's the Gospel promise. And we need to preach these promises so people can understand what God has said and where they should be putting their faith. And the more we try to make a... Make it all temporal. It has to happen in the here and now. The more we miss the whole point of Hebrews. Yes, uh, Kathy. I understand when they promise of the wealth prosperity of here and now that we receive, and we're not supposed to love this world as a sentiment. I mean, how do they like weigh that together and make it work? Um, it's all based on on a misuse of Mark eleven twenty three. That is the linchpin of the entire Word of Faith movement. It says, if you believe and do not doubt, you can have whatever you say. Okay? And Kenneth Hagin took that verse. Uh, I think it's 1123. Do I got that right? All right. He took that verse out of the King James, and the King James has not a very good translation of it. He took that verse out of the King James, and he, and he, and he launched an entire movement from one verse. Yeah. And not only that, they, they, the passage says... the. Yeah, it's sort of a kingdom now thing. Brad? According to his testimony in his book, I Believe in Visions, he was a young man laying in the hospital, pronounced going to, that he was going to die. And that's the first time Jesus appeared to him. And Jesus appeared to him according to this. Now, we have no way to prove whether this is real or mythological. But supposedly, according to his testimony, Jesus cured him and told him to teach these things. All right. But what they, if anybody has any interest in or if you know somebody caught up in this, the book, the definitive book, is called A Different Gospel by Dan McConnell. There, see, and he knows Keith, so he's got two things going for him. <laughs> but Dan McConnell researched this and he showed line by line by line that Kenneth Hagin plagiarized E.W. Kenyon. Didn't even change the words. He took it right out of E.W. Kenyon's writing. And he has this in his book. And which is something I knew because I had heard that way, because I went so far back in this, I knew it came from E.W. Kenyon. Now I have E.W. Kenyon's book in my library, and I don't believe he was a Christian. I just don't believe he was a Christian. Whatever happened to Kenyon? Well, Kenyon died. See, now, they even have a myth about that. See, they're not opposed to creating mythology. They say that Kenyon didn't die, his, his followers. He just decided one day to go to heaven. So even death was in his hands. He had so much faith. He just decided, I'm going to be in heaven now. He didn't, he didn't die. Yes. I, Brad, I, I believe that that is a misuse of the biblical idea of prophecy. And it's turning it more into a psychic hotline. Now, um, yeah, prophecy is, is, um, okay, then we're going to get back to our verse here, alright? The Old Testament prophets were not lawgivers. Moses was the lawgiver. 
The law came through Moses. Now, the, the prophets had two roles, the Old Testament ones. Their first role was to pro- apply the law to the people prophetically. And they did that. They said, here is what the covenant is. Here is what you're doing. Here is why it's wrong. And here's why God is angry about it. All right? That was one role. Which, and there's a literary term for that. It's called a covenant lawsuit. One of the major areas of prophecy in the Old Testament is a covenant lawsuit. Taking the law, applying it. The prophets were not lawgivers. The law was given through Moses. And Moses said, God will raise up a future prophet listen to him. Until such time as he does, the only lawgiver is Moses. Who's that future prophet? Jesus. Now, the prophets weren't lawgivers. They were law appliers. But they also prophesied about the future. But their future prophecy had to do with Israel and her Messiah. All right? For the most, if you just look at the whole genre of Old Testament prophecy, they're prophesying about Israel and her Messiah. That's their topic. Now, Messiah comes. Yes. But again, it was applying the law to a specific person. You know, let's say they had an idolatrous king. Well, the law says, thou shalt not have any idols. Or they had a king that multiplied wives. Moses said, when you have a king, he shall not multiply wives. All right? So a prophet can come and apply that and actually have a word saying God's going to smite you or what God's going to do because of it. But the law had already been given. He didn't come up with a new law for this king. Now, now we're in a new covenant. So what do we have? God has spoken in these last days in His Son. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. We have the Old Testament, many portions in many ways. We have the New Testament. He's spoken in His Son. There are no more lawgivers. There is no prophet that can come and add one word to this any more than the Old Testament could add to the law of Moses. They can only apply it or prophesy about Israel or Messiah. We already have all the prophecy we're going to get, authoritative prophecy, about Israel and her Messiah, future eschatological events, the law of God, the gospel. It's all given to us. No prophet can do anything to add to that or add in any regard and be legitimate. But I do believe in prophecy. And I believe that a lot of people who don't believe in prophecy do believe in prophecy. Because they are reacting to how it's been taught. And if they understood, I think, how, how it really means in the New Testament, they would see nothing to object to. I, I can show, if you, do you have the book Hard to Believe, some of you? If you don't, you should. Uh, you don't have to. You have to have a Bible. But Hard to Believe is very, one of the better books to sell right now. <laughs> Go to page 89 on the book Hard to Believe and you will find John MacArthur prophesying. Yeah, I, that's what I found interesting is that MacArthur says the, you know, the gifts, the revelatory gifts are not for today. And I agree with him, but I don't think they're revelatory. 
I don't believe prophecy, even in the Corinthian church, was necessarily revelatory in the sense of authoritative information. That's, there, there was a new revelation. Um, but, but MacArthur, and it's valid. He gives a valid prophecy. He says, the Lord says, and then he basically applies the gospel. The Lord says, you know, turn to me, repent, give up, you know, whatever it is he says in there. And he's right. And when I was reading Luther, I found Luther prophesying. I, I sent it, in fact, I got it in a file. I sent it to Keith. Luther prophesied. The Lord says, and he was, and Luther was rebuking the monastics. Now, what is that? That is taking that one role that I think still exists, which is applying the covenant, a covenant lawsuit, to a specific situation. So we could legitimately, you don't have to say thus saith the Lord, but we legitimately can say, God has said this, here's what you're doing in teaching, God is displeased with that. It's wrong. That's prophesying. It's, that's not invalid. It needs to happen. It's a legitimate use of, of prophecy. And uh, I would agree with that. Brad? Exactly. That's my point. That's the only, and I wouldn't call, see, another confusion is this word prophet. In the New Testament, there's functional terminology. It's taking a verb, the noun form of a verb. So, and a lot of times they use participles. So if you study Paul in the Greek, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 14, he'll use a participle, the prophesying one, in one verse. And then in a synonymous situation, he'll say the prophet. Now, he's not changing meaning. One is using a participle, which is common in Greek, and the other is just using a noun form. And all it means is, in 1 Corinthians 14, is not some guy with a mantle, you know, calling down fire from heaven. But it's a person who prophesies. It's just functional terminology. But these people say, well, I'm the prophet of God. Well, they're thinking like Elijah or somebody like that, not somebody who's just taking the word and play it. I mean, I, I came out of that, that movement where the abuse is, is when they make laws that don't exist. Like, God wants you, or God wants us. He's told us that we have to build a new building, and you're to fund it. Or God wants you to have a new job, or God wants you... That's abusive. Shepherding good things. God wants you to be rich. Okay. But I say that. So anytime he starts saying definitively God wants or God has said or God has this, in that context, it's abusive by nature. And it's a perversion of the gospel because you say Jesus has spoken once and for all. Oh, God may have that, but I can't right. say that definitively. They're trying to reveal the unrevealed. They're trying to reveal the unrevealed. Yes, Luann. That's, that's a good point. Luann just brought up that it goes hand in hand with signs and wonders. Now again, in the New Testament, if God does a sign or a wonder, it signifies something. And what it signified, if you read it in the Gospels and in Acts, it signified that Jesus really is the Messiah. So, 
that is the only thing that should be signified. So somebody is preaching the gospel and God sovereignly does a sign, which he can do. The sign can do no more than signify the gospel is true. All right? Now, the abuse of it is somebody says, I'm the apostle or I'm the prophet of God. And I'm going to do a sign. And what does the sign signify? It signifies I'm really the prophet of God. False. Wrong answer. Okay? Right. That's, yeah, Brad, that's exactly what Kenneth Hagin was doing. He, was, he claimed to have this special divine status, special status vis-a-vis God because of these signs that proved that he had these personal revelations. And I reject that out of hand. Linda? I mean, there are blessings. Uh, yes, and uh, you know what? I'm going to preach on this this morning in Philippians, where it says, "My God shall supply all your needs." And I'm and I actually got an application. I mean, I'm not saying okay, the word of David movement, like say editors or something. I'm not saying that, but I am saying, you know, David, he got the consequences for his disobedience. He repented, but the consequences remain. And I think that, like, I mean. You know, if you're studying the Bible, I've seen that, you know, obedience to God will bring you blessings. Right. No. You know what I mean? Yeah. He wants to bless. Right? That's true. Now, what we don't know, Linda, is how much of those blessings come to us in this temporal world and how much in eternity. Right. Okay. Now, let's back, that segues us back to our verse. These died in faith without receiving the promises. Were they blessed? Yes, because their, their, their reception was pushed off into eternity. Now, as I read the Bible, how I understand it, although I can't, how, I can't say I feel this way all the time, because we haven't seen heaven, we haven't seen eternal rewards, but from my, the way I read the Bible, if we really had and really understood it, we would be more than happy to have them all pushed off into the eternity. It's that much better. Yeah, exactly. There's so much better, but we haven't seen that, and we don't know how much is here and how much is then. Yes. But I mean, even peace and a clear conscience is a blessing. From that standpoint, you know, I mean, it's not in terms of like stuff like people would suggest. But um, you know, I think about that verse where Jesus said, "If you've given up whatever in this life, you will receive whatever in this life." Yes, mothers, brothers, sisters, and you know, what have you. And right, yes, and, and I'm going to preach on this. I promise the sermon will enlighten this. Okay, and with persecutions. <laughs> you got to put that on. You got to put that on your refrigerator too. Yeah, Brad. Okay. Good question. The question is, how is Deuteronomy? Um, we have a radio show that's still on one place today on this topic. The difference is this. Ultimately, all of the blessings, even the ones promised in the Old Testament, are wrapped up in the person of Messiah. Without faith, ultimately, Abrahamic faith, which is believing about the seed promise, without faith in Messiah, there is no blessing whatsoever. Only the curse. So the ultimate key to blessing and cursing and being blessed is to is faith in Messiah. Um, the ultimate curse is to be excluded from the covenant 
promises, according to Ephesians chapter 2. Now, if you look up the term blessed in the New Testament, it's used in many, many interesting contexts, usually in the idea of reversal. In the uh, Beatitudes, blessed are, like the Luke version, blessed are the poor. That's a total reversal of the idea in Deuteronomy, at least as they would understand it. They, they, they thought riches were a sign of God's blessing. Jesus comes along and says, blessed are the poor. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have looked at it that way. Um, blessed are you when men speak evil of you. Remember that? Well, that's not how we would normally think of it. Yeah, exactly. People are speaking evil of me. Keith found it on the internet. Um, okay. But again, why? Well, for the, if it's for the sake of the gospel. So really, we need to know the gospel. Let's get this verse done here. We, these all died in faith, all right? So eschatological, temporal, not spatial, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance. Now, I want to tell you something about the Greek. The word welcomed here means a saluting. And it's a, I salute you, a spadzomarazomai or something like that. I, that's kind of a cool word they had. Uh, I, I didn't get that right. I'd have to, I didn't write it down here. But it was, a, it was a word for I salute you. Now, from a distance here, it says they confessed. In the Greek, it's a, a participle um, being, uh, being confessing ones, having been confessing ones is literally what it says. And it meant a public profession of faith. So they publicly, in front of humans, were confessing ones who said they believed God and what he said. That's what it means. And it says they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And here it is, it is interesting um, that this, uh, these people of faith already understood, according to this passage, that they were people who had been called out of this world and to an, a final eternal kingdom that's going to be messianic that would be the ultimate fulfillment of these promises. So that was already a part of Old Testament faith. It isn't as expressed as explicitly in very many Old Testament passages. But it is there. And the author of Hebrews says that they had faith ultimately in heaven. So there's a continuity of the Bible. Now... Um, Let me see here. Uh, let's start over here. Dean, Genesis 23.4. Brian, Genesis 48.21. Denise, Genesis 49.33. Linda, Genesis 50 and verse 24. You got that all down? No. <laughs> You're next. I did, Linda had Genesis 50.24. Okay, Kathy, Job 19.25. Linda, Psalm 119.19. And Keith, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. And I'll repeat those when the people read them for those of you who like to write these down. The first one is Genesis 23, 4, going to be read by Dean. I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. 
So here uh, Abraham called himself a stranger and a sojourner, and all he wanted was a burial place for his wife, even though the whole land had been promised him. He believed in the future. He believed that God's future promise was true. He didn't have to own the land. Remember when they disputed with Lot, he said, take whatever you want. He believed God's promise. Genesis 48:21, Brian. And Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you again to the land of your fathers. So Jacob believed that God would bring them again to the land. So uh, Genesis 49:33, Denise. Notice where it says he was gathered to his people. There was an idea of life beyond the grave already in Genesis, right? It isn't just this, you know, obliteration and no hope. Remember, Jesus said God is the God of the living, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're living, they lived on, the people of faith. Genesis 50 and verse 24, Linda. Okay, so Joseph confessed the same promise. That God had promised the land, and even though they were in Egypt at the time, God would eventually bring his children out of Egypt and back into the land. So they all were reiterating promises that God gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They continued to believe them. All the way down through Joseph. Now Job uh, is interesting. Job 19.25, Kathy. That's in Handel's Messiah. I know that my Redeemer lives and he will stand. So there again, we have an eschatological perspective already in Job. Job lived before Abraham, as far as we know. Psalm 119.19, Linda. So there again is uh, the psalmist confessing to be a stranger on the earth. So again, the idea isn't just in the New Testament. It's also uh, an idea found in the Old Testament saints. 1 Peter 1, 10-12, I love this passage. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Wow. Doesn't that say, say it all? They weren't serving themselves, but you. They believed in a gospel that hadn't yet been fully realized. It was yet future. And they prophesied by the Holy Spirit about Messiah and the glories to come. And now we, who have received the gospel, are um, privy to glorious things that even angels desire to look into. And how, uh, how important is it that we, that we handle the Word of God with care? How important is it that we get the Gospel right and preach it biblically? I mean, this is precious. And I think the most alarming thing is the slipshod way people handle this and a lack of concern. I got back after a week of vacation, and I came out here last night and did emails for hours. I had a week worth of email responses, and I want to get them all done Saturday night, so I wouldn't have to, because we're going to mail CIC this next week. And interesting emails from all over the country, and really, really cool emails. 
One I, one I got was very interesting, and it had to do with this article about the emerging church. And this lady said, well, I was discussing this with some people, and, they, and, and I was telling them that they need to look this word up in the Greek to understand this passage of the Bible. And they said, oh, that's Western. That's a Western civilization looking things up in the Greek. Yeah, that was the response. This is Western. See, Eastern people don't look at it that way. Now, what they're doing, they're, well, they're, they're, what they're saying is only, it's just a cultural thing that we should care what God said down to the very words. And what the emerging church is attacking is verbal, propositional revelation. They have a mystical feeling, but no actual words that mean something. So I wrote back to the lady, and I said, no. I said, yeah, I guess you could say it comes from Western civilization, if and only if you admit that Western civilization came from Moses. All right? And here's why I say that. Moses is the groundwork of Western civilization. The idea is that if you study Western civ, they exclude Moses which is a uh, revisionist history. Moses, some of the ideas that Western people hold dear came directly from Moses. Like the fact that the king is subject to some greater power than himself. We have that in our Constitution. There's no king. Moses had that in Deuteronomy 17. Now, why do I say Moses? Because Moses went up on a mountain and he received words written by the finger of God. And who, I'm going to, by the way, I'm going to do a lecture on this at Labrie on September 9th uh, on this topic because Schaefer was talking about this. Who can say that God doesn't give verbalized propositional revelation? That, that a valid law is, thou shalt not steal, is a proposition. Who wrote that on that stone? God. What did he use? His finger. What did he write? Words. In what language? Hebrew. God wrote literal words with his finger on literal stones in a literal human language. Now, these people are going to go around. Now, I'm getting fired up, but that email really got to me. We need to, we, this is fatal. I'm telling you, it's fatal to the gospel. It's fatal to Christianity. As soon as words don't mean anything, as soon as it doesn't matter, these are things angels desire to look into. And who are we to say, oh, it doesn't matter. Use a paraphrase. Tell, tell a story. Give an experience. It doesn't matter. It can mean whatever we want it to mean. What we've done is put ourselves in utter, sinful, purposeful rebellion against God who wrote on stones. And um, uh, this, I'm passionate about this because I, I reread Schaefer while I was up north. I did get that done. Because I'm going to lecture at Labrie, so I don't want to be a dummy. And I, I re, I've read Schaefer like four or five times, but I, re, I reread the God who was there, and he's not silent. And Schaefer, in his book, written years before this emergent church ever showed up on the scene of history, said the only hope, the only possibility that we can truly know God and truly know truth, and we can know about God and man and life, is that God has spoken in verbal, propositional revelation. And if that's Western civilization, well, would to God it were. You know, Western civilization is becoming Easternized. 
And don't let anybody throw these red herrings out there. And, and just, uh, so I told the lady, a wonderful lady, this is that Greta that, that, that we know, just a tremendous lady. Uh, she was just asking for some ammunition. She was rereading Schaefer too to go after this. So, go to the Ten Commandments. If you say it doesn't matter what it says, we don't need to know anything about translating from some original language. Well, we're just saying to God is, you wasted your time writing on those stones. Because nobody can know what language means anyhow. It's just a waste of time. Why didn't he just set up some stones in a little shrine and have us meditate in front of them? I think I'm going to put a PowerPoint for that in my lecture. That'd be very interesting. So, well, you got, if you actually had the literal stones, people would think they were magic. But they're, they're, they're useless other than the words that are written on them. Do you get that? The, the holiness is in the words, not in the stone. Oh, oh, don't let me forget this. That's got to go into lecture. That's what's wrong with the emergent church. It's up a little place, you sit there, and I feel God. Words, who needs them? God speaks words. And they contain truth that angels desire to look into. And we need to hold those words as utterly holy.